let me do the welcome back. Okay, it's been, it. I know it's been years. It's been Hasn't, an age. Haven't done this this year yet. <laughs> <laughs> so here goes like a really rough effort. Welcome back to Catechized, the podcast where we discuss the historical form confessions and catechisms. I'm your host, Josh. With me, as always, is my co-host, St. John the Divine. Say hi, John. Ah, well done, Josh. Hi. Thank you. I said ah rather than hi. Ah! ah! <laughs> you did a good job saying that introduction, but I can't squeak out the word hi. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was well. So I was surprised at your execution, and it kind of took me off guard. I was like, no way. Normally, he like like Pump. staggers through some word in there. I know. I did it. Welcome to Catechism Reform Podcast about um uh, kids. Uh, Something yep. like that, usually. That's really good. You've mocked me sufficiently there. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah. good, good to, to be, be back. Oh my gosh, I was starting to say the same I thing. I stole it from you. It is good to be back. We uh, we went on our little, um, it was kind of a combined post-season slash holiday break, and it was meant to be just through Christmas and New Year's, just to, <laughs> like a one-week like two holiday little time away. Like but a couple weeks. I got Corona-19, and... So it's been longer than that, <laughs> but it's good to be back now. It was totally fine for me. I know that it's, I'm not trying to like be political and talking about a thing that's divisive, but it, you didn't have a bad case. It, it was a mild cold yeah. and then things smelled less than they usually do. Yeah. And I was locked in a room away from my wife and we, we started quarantining separately from one another on our first anniversary. Oh, devastating. <laughs> I was bummed, but she was really upset. Um, which I, is fair. I think I was texting you guys that day, and yeah, she sounded like she was a little peeved. Yeah, she was. It was just really disappointing. Is, yeah. is the gist of it, which is is fair, and it is disappointing. But yeah, back hey, to- you're unlikely to ever have as bad of an anniversary as that. Let's hope so. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have a low bar to get we over. We do have a low <laughs> bar, but uh, so we're back, back well, again. Anyway, back to the healthy, old- healthy, wealthy, and wise. Well. We're definitely the first one, <laughs> definitely not the second one, and hopefully and the, maybe partial and just third. enough of the third one for this to be worth your time. <laughs> um, <laughs> well said. So, um, yeah, this is a footnotes and proof text, and as John and I were talking about this episode, we couldn't remember why we picked this topic. <laughs> so... I, there, we must have touched on, like, the millenniums... The No. The millennium, the millennial views in some episode this season but i just couldn't think of what it was yeah so anyway well that's what it is we're talking about the views of the millennium which will explain what that even means in a second here yeah but yeah i know that way 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 back we got a question from a catechumen asking about this and i said we'll address it later and we are but that's not why because this is not written in the questions from the catechumens part of the notes (laughs) it's written in the footnotes and proof texts so and I know I know that we were talking in an episode and I went down and I wrote for season three footnotes and proof text do the views of the millennium I just can't figure out why but that's what we're doing <laughs> anyway so John really quickly before I read this this discussion historically takes place regarding Revelation twenty each view of the millennium finds its name from how it understands Revelation twenty but we're going to talk about kind of how and, and uh, if that's if that's actually a good way to to frame one's eschatology, yeah. But what is this? What what does it mean to have a view of the millennium, John? Yeah. So 
in Revelation 20, and like you said, we'll read that shortly, it basically, there's a reference to a thousand-year period, this thousand-year period that we have in Revelation, but we don't really have it kind of clearly anywhere else in the Bible. Yeah. And so there's a lot of discussion in this passage about what it means because it's like, well, how does this relate to the second coming of Christ? How does this relate to you know, the church right. and all of these components sort of floating around in Revelation and we're trying to uh, stabilize them into a cohesive view, which is what these different views are trying to do. Right. Because basically this is a chapter that discusses a, the millennium is a, a, a period of time where Christ reigns. It's, it's a the thousand yeah. year reign of Christ. And all the different views are basically named regarding how they view Christ's return in relation to this thousand-year reign. Yeah, and we'll 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 describe that after I read it. But yeah, I'll read. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah, can I just a short disclaimer at the beginning here? Um, this I think this is a valuable discussion for Christians to have. With that being said, this is not a this is not the hill you should die on. We want to talk about this because it's important. It's the Bible. You want to understand the Bible, God's word, as best as you can. And so that's why we talk about it. But I don't want to make this sound like, if you hold a different view of this, you know, don't ever listen to our podcast. Like, <laughs> Right. We don't want like, anything to do with you. With that being said, you're absolutely right, and I totally agree. But we also need to recognize, I think, and that'll be part of today's discussion, we need to recognize how influential a view of eschatology, eschatology, yeah. the last things, the end times, that really shapes how one views and practices the faith. Yeah. And, th- and that is, is really important. Very so, true. And this plays a, a fairly large role in your view of eschatology. Or I, I should say, your view of eschatology shapes your view of the millennium pretty heavily. Well. Or vice versa. Vice versa. That that yeah we'll get we'll get into it so back yeah we digress. <laughs> Millennium is a thousand year reign of Christ. Different views of the of the last times of of uh, Christ's return are named relative to how they view Christ's return in relation to this thousand year reign, and the the way that one uh, understands Revelation twenty and the thousand year reign of Christ and his return shapes a lot of how one understands and practices the faith and and so revelation 20 it's one through nine ish the the verses that we'll read here uh that that uh, are the foundation of this discussion of the millennium so this is revelation 20 uh starting in verse one then i saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit, and he shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. 
but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign for, uh, with him for a thousand years. Then when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, and their number is like the sand of the sea. And then it, uh, John goes on to discuss the, the, the John events. John, author of Revelation, not John me. Correct. Good. John, the actual apostle, um, <laughs> goes on to discuss kind of the, the final things following the, the end of this thousand-year reign. So let, I want to break down what the different views are, and then we'll discuss each of the different views. Brief context, real quick. Ten seconds. This comes near the end of the book of Revelation. Revelation is a book full of visions and apocalyptic literature, so it's pretty hard to interpret. So when you're hearing all this stuff about angels coming down, gold chains, heaven, pits, all of this sort of thing, there's generally a lot of symbolism worked into that. So yeah, there you go. Also, for maybe some who are interested in Revelation and the millennial views of the millennium and, and other eschatological things and know what I'm about to say. <laughs> Basically, we're not going to be digging into Revelation and as a whole. As a whole, and we're yeah. not going to be digging into different views of Revelation like preterist versus futurist as in when when are these events? Are these events in John's future and our past? Are they in John's future and our future and all that? Those are relevant and connected to views of eschatology and, and views of the millennium, but this discussion is very particularly focused on the millennium for the sake of yeah. It being coherent and short. <laughs> and not taking three years. So Yeah. Um, yeah, we're starting a second podcast called uh never mind, I can't. Signs of the Times. <laughs> <laughs> called Left Behind. Yeah. Um, good call. No. <laughs> um goodness gracious. What a Just kidding. And that left behind guy, Tim LaHaye, he's done more damage. Never mind. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh so there there are the three basic views of this passage and are, are, are basically the three basic ways that people understand eschatology, understand the last things yeah. are premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. And all of these views are named by how they see, again, the relationship of Christ's return with his reign as his reign is described in Revelation 20. And so premillennial view is that christ returns pre his millennial reign he comes back to earth has this millennial reign and then after that the end times defeat of his enemies and the judgment seat come so just put christ returns before each title and that explains it right exactly yeah because post mill christ returns post the millennium so we have this millennial thousand year reign um after which time christ returns and then amillennialism says there, the the millennium is uh, there's not a thousand year literal reign that doesn't exist. Yeah, uh, that's not what John is saying, and um, so we are not to understand this passage as being a literal millennium. Yeah, and so it kind of, yeah, that's that's, yeah, that's Amil. That so that's the three. So we're gonna briefly kind of explain the what and the why of each view, and then we will both or maybe I will and John will comment on, share our the, the, the our personal convictions on this matter and yeah. why we hold those. Um, we're pretty close yeah. to one another, I think. Yeah. Um, okay, so premillennialism. We are pretty close to one another, Josh. We, that's ju- what friendship's all yeah. about. That's Sorry. So, that's, that's <laughs> you so can edit true. that out. <laughs> no, I'm going to leave that in. 
we are um, oh. a friend a friend but there's a friend who is closer than a brother <laughs> now my brother might listen to be, be listening to this john john uh my brother's also named john um so that's confusing that's difficult it's not the point of that passage anyways <laughs> um so premillennialism first view premillennialism christ returns before the millennium now uh, there are this this is basically an episode in rhetoric and like terminology um and and uh oh what's that what's that word called not that word called but what is the word uh uh maybe no i don't i'm not sure what you're looking for like uh a field with super speci- specified and and um particular vocabulary jargon yes this is basically an episode in jargon <laughs> <laughs> um okay so premillennialism can be broken down into like five subcategories <laughs> There is, his, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> there, there is historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism. Those are the two categories that are the main way of understanding this premillennialism. Yeah. <laughs> they, they are basically this: historic premillennialism is is kind of what early church fathers held that that Christ was going to return to Earth and establish a literal thousand year reign where He reigned as King in the new uh, like like on this earth and then judgment day and the renewal of all things yeah um that's so we're not at the new heavens and the new earth until after the millennium but jesus is reigning on the old heavens and the old earth well you know what i mean yeah um in in the current world for one thousand literal years yeah that is historic premillennialism yeah dispensational premillennialism takes uh other passages adding them to the understanding of the millennium and combining ideas and uh, based on its way of viewing how God works. Again, we kind of talked about dispensationalism a couple times in previous episodes. Yeah. And and so what uh, like on our discussions of covenant theology and things like that. So we're not going to break down what dispensational theology is here, but because of how they view God to be working in different dispensations, different ways and different periods throughout the history of the world they see this as an iteration of of those dispensations and another really relevant passage to this view uh, to views of eschatology is daniel 9 mm. um and uh and we'll talk about that more later but dis pre or dispensational premillennialism is kind of the operating eschatology of most americans kind Be- of subtly yeah, like, like, uh, uh, not. It's not like every American Christian has gone out into the world and studied eschatology and picked a dispensational premillennialism, but because of both the prevalence of dispensationalism in America in the twentieth century, mm-hmm. um, or nineteenth twentieth century, uh, and, um, uh, and like pop books like the left behind series and the way that those have not only impacted Christians, but have been kind of co-opted by some pop cultural understandings of what Christians believe that it's the kind of the loudest voice in the eschatological discussion. And so, because it's the only thing that many Christians have been exposed to explicitly or implicitly, it's kind of what they believe. It's, it's sort of like the default setting. People, people have this, um, in in modern Christian America, yeah, I should say, yeah, not in not in all of Christian history, 
But in modern Christian America, someone becomes a Christian, like they're a new convert. You sort of ask them about, you know, what's going on at the end. They have this general understanding of maybe like a rapture and Jesus coming back and ruling on earth and all, you know, a bunch of like specific events that they don't understand from the book of Revelation. Right. Coming. And so, yeah. So what dispensational premillennialism teaches is that there is a seven year tribulation and um, Jesus returns after that seven year tribulation and rules for a thousand years mm. and so there's a seven year period of things being really bad leading up to jesus's return which is why which is where you get a lot of this kind of doomsday looking for all sorts of things to be falling apart stuff uh, yeah. because that that prepares jesus coming and then within dispensational premillennialism there are pre-trib mid-trib and post-trib <laughs> dispensational premillennialists mm. and that means when in the seven-year tribulation that precedes Christ's return and reign on earth for a thousand years, are the Christians raptured. And so pre-trib... The Christians pulled out. Pulled off of earth. And so this comes from some understandings of passages in Matthew and Thessalonians. And so they, they would believe that pre-trib is Jesus takes all the Christians off the earth. There's seven horrible years. Jesus and the Christians come back and they reign for a thousand literal years on a physical earth, on this physical earth. Yeah. And then mid-trib is that same thing happens, but three and a half years in, Christians have have to suffer through half the tribulation. Uh, and then there is post-trib, which is um, Christians suffer the whole tribulation. Then they are raptured yeah. and then they come with Christ to rule for a thousand literal years. Tim LaHaye and uh, Left Behind are pre-trib, pre-mill, pre-trib dispensational pre-mill in their eschatology. They believe that Jesus is going to zap off the, all the Christians off the earth. He's going to, there will be seven years of misery. Then Jesus will come and reign on this earth as it is for 1,000 literal years. Yeah. That's, Based- that is the premillennial view. Th- those are the different iterations of the premillennial view. Yeah. And let me just say real quick now, post-mill and ah-mill are simpler. less complicated than this. <laughs> so if you are struggling, hang with us. <laughs> bear, yeah, bear with us. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, this uh, this is premillennialism. Well, yeah, we'll get to this when you, we kind of get to the how does the your view impact your understanding. So, John, really quickly, what are some of the like reasons people are pre-mill or what are the strengths of um of of a premillennial view. I I would say the the main thing that comes to mind is there's sort of a um there's a really strong effort to read the Bible, but especially the book of Revelation as maybe literally and as seriously as it can. Mm-hmm. And so it it it's come up with this understanding of events and how things are going to shake out based on the book of revelation so right. you 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 read these and it's not like the guy's just like oh, you know it'd be cool if i just made this up it's like he's people with this you are trying to account for all of these things in revelation particularly also they're trying to account for the uh, chronology of revelation that as well where where i would read revelation um oops sorry i gave myself away i would read revelation you fool um as being, you know, various visions often pretty much referring to the same thing in different 
settings and there's a lot of overlap to what is being said. Uh, dispensational premillennialist usually reads the book of Revelation and says, all right. And, Sequentially. Yeah. yeah. In chapter four. That's, I don't know. Not in chapter four, but like in chapter six, seven bowls of wrath or something like that. And then seven trumpets where I would see these as being similar things. They would say, all right, there's seven bowls of wrath. And then later there's seven trumpets. And then later there's these things. And then later there's these things. Whereas I would say a lot of these are describing the same event. Sure. Um, they would kind of parse them out saying, no, John is talking chronologically here. Right. And so you have to, at the very least, give them credit for sticking to scripture as best they can. Yeah. Their, their, their desire is to take the Bible very seriously. Yeah. And they're, um, and, and so they kind of just trust, uh, the text at face value because of their 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 very high their high view of scripture. Yeah, and that's yeah, and and I think I I agree. I think that's the I think that's the strength of premillennialism. Yeah. Um, okay, so post millennialism. We're moving on. View number two, post millennialism. Nice. Um, post millennialism is again named uh, for Christ's return relative to this thousand year reign. Christ returns to earth. His second coming follows the, the thousand year reign described in Revelation 20. Now there, there are two subcategories of post mill and they are basically um, Revelation is talking about a literal thousand years or not. It's not literal. Yeah. Um, and, and so you can have post-mill people who think that there is a thousand years of rain uh, and then Jesus returns or that the millennium is not a literal period of time but describes the the growth of the church and then Christ comes. And so basically yeah. the difference is, is this rain which precedes Christ's return actually a thousand years or or is it not? Yeah. Um, and when we say rain... The idea is basically God reigns in heaven, but the earth, Satan is subdued to such an extent that the earth is, well, uh, yeah. So a great place. <laughs> yeah the 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 post mill is of all the views the most optimistic view, yeah. um, and and kind of yeah the the best way to summarize what John was saying there is that the reign is that because Christ reigns in heaven. That, that's the reign that's being discussed. Yeah. And the way that that reign is realized on earth is through the reign of the church. And this... this uh, Reign, this, quote unquote, not like... No, the, like... No, that's the thing. Oh, do they is, think it's like a real like church government? No, no, no. no <laughs> not that like church yeah. and state become the same. Yeah. But that... Um, yeah, so the... The the, re- the justification or the reason behind this from, from Revelation 20 is that um, Revelation 20 never mentions Christ coming to earth. It never mentions his return mm. prior to this thousand-year reign. Yeah. Um, the, the, the return of Christ is not mentioned before. Um, it talks about his reign and, and the reign of the saints um, and the binding of Satan, but it never says Jesus comes to earth. It yeah. never says that he reigns on earth. And so they go, well, let's look at the rest of the Bible. Psalm 110 says that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, reigning there, and he will reign there until his enemies are made a footstool. Um, and, and so uh, Jesus is reigning in heaven, and uh, that's the reign that's being discussed, and he his return comes after his enemies are defeated. Uh, and they pull from, they, they add to this with other passages, whether they be the parables 
um, that Jesus teaches regarding the kingdom. It's like a mustard seed or yeast. It starts really small and, and then it then it grows. It, the yeast either overtakes the loaf, rising, leavening the whole loaf, or the mustard yeah. seed, which is tiny, becomes this, this great tree in which birds find shade and shelter. Um, and because the kingdom of God is like that, that's what we should expect over history. That the and because of passages where Christ commands his church to evangelize the nations, mm-hmm. um, and that the promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. Yeah. And so the way in which the enemies of Christ are made his footstool is by his spirit working through the church on earth. And so the the basic view of the post millennial is that the nations will be evangelized. Yeah. Yeah, the gospel, the kingdom of God is is starts out small and then it grows to be all encompassing. Yeah. <laughs> not that uh not that every single individual will be a believer, but that the that all of the nations will be Christian nations, that yeah. the whole world will be the church. Yeah. And it is that, that that victory and that success of the the spreading of the gospel, of the making disciples of all nations, um, of the growth of the church that it is that victory that then ushers in Christ's return and where he, wherein he comes and he defeats the final enemy, which is death, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians yeah. 15. The last enemy to defeat is his death. Later in Revelation 28, Christ's return and judgment seat, he throws, uh, he conquers death and, and throws um, yeah. uh, death in to hell. And then all those who are followers of Satan by not being followers of him are cast in also. It's, it's just like if you had like a line graph or something, it would just be getting better and better, going up and up and up right. and up and up. Yeah. And that's not to say there's no sin in the world or something like that, but the post-millennial view is basically just that it keeps, the world keeps getting closer and closer to Christ, more and more evangelized. The church grows and grows. Right. Um, and so it's kind of, it, yeah. it is very optimistic. Yeah. And, and so I, you know, I I wouldn't be opposed if that happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 kind of the view that if you're an honest Christian, everyone hopes that that's the right one. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think the strengths. Just quickly, I think the strengths of the post mill view are that it takes into account a, a lot of scripture. It 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 brings in a, a lot of what is taught in the Psalms and in the yeah. parables of Christ and the commands of Christ and all sorts of other things regarding what. Christ church will be and what it will do and what it's been commanded mm-hmm. to do and that uh that it's it's reading scripture according to scripture yeah uh, and i think that's a really strong thing and uh, again that there is something um just and good about having confidence in the victory of the king of kings yeah uh that 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 being optimistic about christ's rule and his promises that hell will not prevail against the church and his command to evangelize the nations, that that's a good, yeah. And I think it's, it's well done. And again, yeah. One of the positive things is that it is a hopeful thing. Yeah. And I think even, even if you, you don't find the post mill view convincing, I think there is some good takeaway from it in the sense that we, sometimes we as a church have like a, just hunker down in your bunker and, um, survive until jesus comes back and there is a sense in the bible in which we are to grow and expand the kingdom and that you know god goes with us when we do these things and so i think i think at the very least it's it's never wrong to temper your 
view of the world with some of this biblical optimism. Yeah, and that uh, th- that's a good point, and we'll we'll elaborate on that when we get to kind of how yeah. these shape your your operating. Yeah, um, in faith. And uh, cool. So the last one, amillennialism. Third it, view. Third view. It basically says um, this this millennium that is is described in um, in Revelation twenty is not literal. There is no literal reign. And um, amillennialism kind of uh, it's it's almost post millennialism, mm, <laughs> almost yeah. the non literal post millennialism. Because what it, it basically the amillennial view is that the millennium, the the thousand year reign describes the period of time between Christ's ascension and his return. The church age is the millennium Mm -hmm. uh, because when Christ ascended into heaven, he ascended to his throne. And so he reigns there now. And not only does the millennial passage of revelation not say that Christ returns before the millennium, it doesn't say that he reigns on earth. It says that he reigns. Uh, And, and so Christ does reign according to the Amil view and his reigning is in heaven. Um, yeah. He is reigning right now, and the uh, the the millennium, the millennial description is just a a way of describing that period um, between his ascension and second coming. A symbolic and way. A symbolic way. And they they would say that Christ comes, and that ends the millennium, and and ushers in the defeat of the final enemies as described in revelation 20 and ends and brings about the judgment of all the living and the dead yeah and um oh shoot there was something i was gonna say oh yeah both post-millennialism and amillennialism see the binding of satan as this limiting of satan's power so that the gospel would spread to all Mm. nations right because prior to Christ's ministry, the people of God were ethnic Israel. And yes, Gentiles could be grafted in. But it was um, few and far between on the whole. Exactly. And the nations were deceived. Um, the The New Testament um, often speaks of the dominion and the power of Satan. And when Satan tempts Jesus, he tempts him with the nations, which are his because of the fall. And um, the, the post and amillennial views would see the binding of Satan as the reality that when Christ uh, rose from the dead, he bound Satan, um, not making Satan inactive, but, and not making the forces of hell inactive, uh, like spiritual warfare is real, um, but saying that Satan has been limited in his ability to deceive the nations, because that's what it says. He's been bound re- relative to his deception of the nations, yeah. Um, so that the gospel might go out to all nations. That's what the binding of Satan is. Whereas a primo would see the binding of Satan as when Christ comes, he binds Satan and then reigns on earth. Yeah. Because so Satan's sin- not yet bound in a pre-mill view. Right. Good. Yeah. Um, and I think. I think. So one of the justifications for this view. Yeah, so I was just going to ask you. So yeah. yeah, give us the strengths and the justifications for it. Yeah, so the the first thing for me that comes to mind is that much of biblical prophecy is symbolic. It's not literal. I, I think back to the, um, I think it's in Numbers, where God is talking about Moses, and he says, um, he talks about there will be prophets who I speak to with you know signs and um, you know, 
wonders and stuff like that that are basically confusing and hard to interpret. But sure. to Moses, I speak face to face. Right. And so in that, God already makes clear that he is speaking in a non-straightforward way right. to prophets and to right. you know later Christians. And I think that's important because a lot of the rest of the prophecy in the Bible, and including prophecy we we see fulfilled, you know, from the Old Testament in Christ, is not fulfilled in the straight most straightforward way. In the like, well, that's how we expected it to be fulfilled. Right. When it talks about a, um, you know, a Messiah, they think it's going to be this warrior who comes and takes over, overthrows Rome. Yeah, overthrows Rome. You know, just rocks everything, and so. Um, those prophecies in the Old Testament are often symbolic or unclear. And I think a similar principle is true in Revelation as well. It's not meant for us to be able to decipher the code or to, you know, count days and stuff necessarily. It's a lot more painting this picture. So when we see lots of, you know, sevens or sixes or twelves or these numbers in Revelation, the idea is not necessarily about the literal count of what they are it's more about what the number symbolize in relation where you know seven is completion um six is incompletion six 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 is incompletion to the nth degree right um you know stuff like that and so i think the number a thousand is also kind of falls in that category of a an age an an age yeah A, a symbolic period of time um you know something like that and so i think the amillennial view does kind of the most justice to that also i think there's um there's a lot to be said maybe in contrast to the post-millennial view the um, millennial view maybe uh accounts treat, better for yeah accounts better for these passages where it doesn't look like things are getting better yeah it's not like the world is just this like oh this budding rose of perfection like <laughs> everything's improving you know revelation itself talks a lot about um, persecution persecution suffering teachers and people being led astray and wars and rumors of wars and and all sorts of things and similar a lot of the epistles in in the new testament also deal heavily with this theme of don't fall away persevere understanding it's difficult but encouraging them to press on all the same which sort of suggests that it's not like all all going to be that easy right yeah yeah cool good so there's the three views there are their strengths and justifications and weaknesses um i said we'd talk about daniel 9 basically daniel 9 talks about these 77s 70 weeks uh before the return from exile yeah and daniel's written while israel is in exile in back in the old testament yeah in babylon, babylon and persia they yeah. he overlaps and and yeah the, that that idea of how do these 77s unfold is relevant to this conversation basically daniel 9 24 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to the first uh to finish the transgression to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity to bring an everlasting righteousness to seal both vision and profit and to anoint the most holy place know therefore and understand that from the going out uh of the word to restore and rebuild jerusalem so that's when cyrus says go back and to and 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 rebuild from yeah. that moment 
um, the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. But for 62 weeks, then for 62 weeks, uh, it shall be built again and squares and the moat and a troubled time. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall cut off and shall have nothing. And the people and the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end shall come with a flood and the end there will be war. Uh, desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant and with many for one week and for half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering and the wing and a uh, and of the wing on the wing of abominations uh, shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. That is one of the most intense and hard to understand prophecies <laughs> in the Bible, um, but it's really relevant to views of eschatology because of how different pre, post, and amil yeah. people see that seventy weeks as uh, incorporating. Uh, this millennium and i bring it up not because we can explain it in this short episode because we can't that's like two episodes in its own self that's like its a own right. phd study <laughs> um yeah our we had a, a professor come in in our soteriology eschatology class discuss this passage it was really good and i could go back to my notes and do an episode on this but it would take forever yeah and we don't have time but the 70 weeks basically the discussion about this is understood differently and i'm going to use that as a segue into me discussing my personal conviction and why and and, and so basically my what the the understanding of eschatology that i hold is a an optimistic amillennial view an optimistic amillennial view and i'll explain a little bit what that means in a second i think one of the and the reason i think this is helpful is because maybe me demonstrating the discernment process is, is helpful to both understanding the views and to, to hopefully demonstrating um, discernment done done well. And it's yeah. done well not because I'm great, but because I've had many wise mentors and pastors and professors yeah. care for me and my um, growing in faith. Anyways, um, the first is, and part of that is saying, but why am I not the other things? I think that's helpful. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I'm not pre-mill is because it's dispensational roots just butcher Daniel nine. <laughs> um, there are 70 weeks that they account for and they basically describe uh, the church age. So from Christ's ascension until now, and then that church age extends until the tribulation and rapture and return of Christ um, as a like unaccounted for, pause in the 70 weeks <laughs> that there's these 70 weeks and they're unfolding in this way and that way and and then because of christ doing stuff differently because israel didn't repent or whatever um there is an interruption in the unfolding of this prophecy for the ethnic people of israel dispensationalism has different destinies for israel and the church yeah the church age interrupts that 70 weeks and christ's reign continues that 70 weeks and that is nonsensical it's almost like the church age is like a you know random little almost accidental filler in god's plan in a for two thousand years yeah. <laughs> plus crap i didn't see this one coming right oh and wow. yes prophets don't they 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 don't know in full detail what they're seeing yeah um daniel had and daniel had understanding but he didn't whatever but yeah but that's a that's a big miss <laughs> of like to have it not accounted for at all, however much Daniel understood it, is a problem. Yeah, I think that, that Primo misses that. I think Primo also misses, it over-literalizes. Um, yeah. And 
And taking the Bible seriously is really good, but I think part of taking the Bible seriously is reading it as its author and intended it. And the genre is part of the indication of how the author intended the book to be read. And the apocalyptic literature that is Revelation is not meant to be taken literally in that sense that 1,000 equals 1,000. A beast is literally a beast coming out of the ocean. That's The beast is a symbol that represents a real literal thing or many real literal things. Yeah. Um, and so I think that mistreat, uh, what I would see as a mistreatment of Revelation is also yeah. kind of a, a mark against premillennialism. And now I will briefly yeah. say, sorry, go ahead. Just briefly, I think there's a misconception sometimes that literal is the best reading or the most appropriate reading of a text and anything else is starting to drift from it. Um, I think we're sometimes shaped by this sort of like this view that uh, you know, maybe with like the creation account in Genesis, there's right. like uh, you go literal or if you don't go literal, you're just like, it's a good story. You right. know, it's good to remind you God not... made it the world, you know, like um, there's sort of this like, well, the literal is far and away better than this like flimsy uh, made up folk tale view. And so we need to stick to the literal. That same thing gets taken into Revelation a lot of time where it's like, I'm going to say that this is what exactly happened in that ch- the next chapter is exactly what happened right after that. And then, you know, so forth and so forth. But that's just not fair to what the re- you know, what the book of Revelation is. It's a bunch of it's like a collection of visions. And right. Um, it's not that. John is teleported forward in time and sees all this stuff and just watches the whole thing play out. It's he's seeing these visions of like heavenly realms and all of these kind of back to back to back to back to back. And he's just writing them out, you know? And so, yeah, I think, I think, I think it's important that we realize that literal doesn't mean most accurate of what the text means in every sense. Right. Um, Yeah. And so what I mean then to, to get back on my, thing that was a really good point um <laughs> not to dismiss that at all to, to um, finally return to what i actually wanted to talk about stop it um Go that ahead. that optimistic amillennialism basically there is a lot i i think is compelling about both amillennialism and postmillennialism, mm-hmm. and i don't think those things in scripture are mutually exclusive as those who are maybe pessimistic amill and and postmill would think that they are mm. for example that I, I I think that the post-millennial conviction that Christ commands the church to evangelize the nations and his promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, I think they're right in that. Yeah. That's, a, that's a correct understanding. And I think that, that, that uh, amillennialism often overemphasizes the, well, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and false teachers and people falling away in persecution and, and emphasizes that to the point where this this command and promise to evangelize the nations and that that will be done the gates of hell will not prevail um is lost at the expense of the upholding of the the badness of the the last age and and i don't think that's fair i think that the that uh, that the post mill well we'll get there in a second with how these impact we'll close with how these impact your your faith i think that I think that's a helpful that's way to a, end. A, an important thing. Yeah. Again, I think that the 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 parables are also in, indicate maybe an optimistic amel, right? That the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed or or a little bit of yeast that 
that grows to a big tree or leavens the whole loaf and that that spread of the gospel again. I think the picture that the New Testament paints is one where the church is victorious, where the church is spreading, where the church is evangelizing the nations. And at the same time, there are false teachers opposing it and leading people astray. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that the victory of the church, as it's described in the New Testament, necessitates the ending of the opposition to yeah. to the church. Um, I think that the, the that it's clear that the nations are continually more and more evangelized. And even as we see the West kind of reject Christianity, it's growing in Africa and China. And um, and we, we have seen the gospel spread to the nations, and it's continuing to do so. And we've seen persecution accompany that. Yeah. And I think that that holding up of both the conquering of the gospel and the continua- continuation of opposition, I think that that holds the New Testament's picture of the last times between Christ's ascension and coming together well. And uh, yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, and... I, I totally agree with that. I was going to say, I think that this is not even that like novel of a concept in the sense that the the life of the believer individually is almost like this as sure. well, where the Bible obviously expects you to be growing and to be more sanctified, but it also understands the struggles of the world. And that's why there's so much encouragement to persevere, realizing that that's going to happen. Right. You go to um, you know passages where Paul talks about the struggles of the Christian life, relying on Christ, not being able to do the good that he wants to do, um, all of these things. And yet we still also see that as Christians, you know, we're more than conquerors. We are, yeah. um, nothing can separate us from Christ. And I think that same idea is true of the church. It's not that we will not be facing these difficult situations, but it's that our vic- despite them, our victory is bound to sure. happen. Yeah. 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 Cool. Now, I think to close, to maybe oversimplify a little, there are basically two outlooks on the last times and on faith that can be held and that are embodied by an embracing of one of these views. Mm. Um, There is a positive and a negative. I think premillennialism represents the negative outlook. Uh, in perspective, and post-millennialism represents the positive. And I think that as an amillennialist, you can either view the world and the last times in a more negative way, like a premillennialist, or you can view the world and the last times more positively in the way that a post-millennialist would. Mm. Um, and I, I think we need it's really good to recognize the impact that this positive and negative outlook has on us, right? Because it colors how we view the world and how we interact with the world. Um, and certainly there would be different ways in which a a premillennialist and a negative or a, a, a pessimistic amillennialist would view theological things. There's a vast mm. disagreement. But they both hold in common this conviction that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. It's falling apart. And kind of that thing you were talking about earlier Maybe the Christian task is just to huddle up until Christ comes back and cleans up the mess. Yeah. And then the post-millennial view and a an optimistic Amil view, there is that understanding that this earth is is going to be renewed and made new. That um, 
that that there's an old book i haven't read it or whatever or i think it's a book it's called the late great planet earth and it's about mm. how this place is not our home and while that's true that this earth is not our home what the bible teaches is, is not that this earth will be discarded and our new home will replace it but that this earth will be renewed and remade into the new earth mm-hmm. and the the post mill view um an optimistic amill view that we are to um, view this world as the one that is being made new and will be made new um, that impacts and influences how we are to live are we to live uh, as the church with the kind of conviction that everything around us is going to crumble and fall apart and this world is going to be discarded or should should we view this world as the world for which christ died that he is going to renew and make new mm. and therefore as christians work for the renewal of this world now because it's what christ is and will finally do when he comes back yeah. and i think that our understanding of a pursuit of justice and uh of a, of a pursuit of caring for neighbor of caring for the planet of caring for one another of caring for the the institution of like good and just i don't know governments and things like that yeah. like that we should have a we should have that optimistic view even the church global right caring about the whole church yeah caring about the whole church good and caring about the next generation one doug wilson is a famous post-millennialist and he often talks about how he uh, well and this is the other thing like uh, the the amillennialist the pessimistic amillennialist and um, pre-millennialists just think of things spiraling into worse and worse situations and then jesus will come again to to fix it yeah and they they kind of it's like the thief in the night 80s movie where jesus is jesus's return is this terrifying thing where be ready because he's coming um <laughs> that analogy is not supposed to instill fear it's just a a reminder that we don't know when jesus is coming back that's why he uses the thief in the night thing yeah but it becomes this like spooky end times thing and our professor said um if your view of the end times instills fear then it is wrong (laughs) like we should not fear the return of christ we should long for it with hope and optimism yeah um he's amil um also for the record and if we're keeping scores here right um but doug wilson often talks about how he like he says that many christians don't live and plan as if their grandchildren will be living on this earth because they think jesus will come back Whereas he lives and plans for this world to continue to the point where kids in church history class are asking each other, who came first again? Was it C.S. Lewis or Anselm? Which one of them was earlier? Because yeah. I can't remember. Because relative to how long the church has been growing on the earth, Anselm and C.S. Lewis are relatively near one another in history. Yeah, um, He has a long view of the game wherein we live and prepare and raise our children to to continue in this world making it new and spreading the church uh and 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 evangelizing the nations um until christ returns and i think that different perspective i think the optimistic one um holds up better into how we ought to live as prescribed by the new testament and the whole bible and i think that matters and it also matters one last thing before i let you talk i'm sorry is that it affects how we understand what the bible means by signs of the end times Whereas maybe a premillennial would be 
looking at me like, see the coronavirus and the riots and all that. It's signs that Jesus is coming back soon because the signs of the times are rumors and wars and violence yeah. and, and people being led astray by false teachers. And things Whereas, getting worse. Right, yeah. things getting worse. Whereas in Amil and Postmill think that the end times are Christ's ascension until his return. And the signs of the times are not meant as warnings telling you when the end times are about to start. They are descriptors reminding you of what the world that you are in is going to be like. Mm. And the signs of the time. So the signs of the times are not prophetic discernment tools. They are reminders of the world that we are in and what it is like to live in that world. Uh, And I think that matters as well. And Mm -hmm. um, why would Jesus give? Yeah. Like Jesus tells us, don't bother yourself with figuring out when I'm going to come back. You're not going to know only the father knows. And so why would all these signs of the time be for us to discern when he's yeah. coming back when he says, we'll never know when he's coming Here's back. Here's how you know. <laughs> I don't know. So yeah. um, eschatology informs a lot of theology, and, and and so it's important to talk about these things. But yeah, again, it's not a hill to, to ultimately die on, but yeah. it is one to take seriously. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's the best kind of closing thoughts <laughs> in, in the sense that I don't think yeah, I don't think you want this to be, um, you know, a division-causing tool. <laughs> like, do you hold my view on this? You don't? Well, we can't get along. You know, I I think we don't want to let it be that, while also acknowledging that it is important. And so, and that's that's true of a lot of a lot of things in the Bible. <laughs> yeah, not sure. not everything. Like, if someone doesn't. <laughs> believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You can't just uh, well, we're good. You know, don't die on hill. Yeah. Like, like don't be divisive over things. Yeah. Yeah. There are things you need to be divisive about. Theology does matter. Theology <laughs> and theology does divide necessarily. Yes, exactly. Um um but you don't all theology doesn't need to be uh I can't be your friend. <laughs> yeah. Well actually no theology really should be a right. I can't be your friend. But but yeah. no theology, like, yeah, theology should, not all theology should be, you are in the church or you are not. Yes, there we go. There, there are very few issues that are that. Yeah. Because, like, to go back to those kingdom parables, right, the, the kingdom of God is like a dragnet that gets a bunch of the good fish and gathers up some of the other things as well, and the fisherman separates them. Jesus separates the sheep from the goats on the last day, and the wheat and the tares from one another on the last day. Yeah. Um, not, it's, it's, it is his job to separate sheep goats wheat tares good fish bad fish yeah. and uh and and so only be divisive where scripture demands it yeah yeah i wonder you know I but bet, don't shy away from it when it does yeah i was gonna say i bet there's a lot of or maybe not a lot but i could imagine that listening to this would create questions so if you have any questions send them in to your boys yeah catechized at gmail.com Send us emails. We'll address them through the questions of the catechumens throughout the coming fourth season. Or so, heck, maybe we'll do an accidental whole episode and footnotes and proof text on it. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> uh, that's a good segue to the end. Cool. So yeah. we got one more footnotes and proof text for you following season three, and that is our first footnotes and proof texts contra Rome, against Rome, where we are discussing kind of the foundational disagreement, which is the issue of authority uh, found in the doctrine of sola scriptura, that the that scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith. We briefly addressed this in episode like three of season one, 
um, but we're going to dig into that debate uh, and then the week after that so that'll be a week from this episode going out yeah uh, and then a week after that we'll dig into season four which is a a uh, a look at the questions from the catechism on soteriology, on redemption applied, on salvation. Uh, so good, all good oh, things baby. coming your way. Um, yeah, but thank thrill. you for tuning in. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CatechizePod. Send us those questions. Hopefully we raised a bunch and answered more. <laughs> uh, but send them to catechize at gmail.com. Give us a like, um, subscription, uh, give us a review. Those are always really helpful. And uh, if you want to support us, we do have a Patreon. Um, oh, do we? We do. The link is on the website. Oh, nice. And it's, uh, yeah. So oh, sweet. <laughs> so if you want to make this a little easier on us to do, because it both takes time and money um, for us. But we, we, again, we aren't doing it for a game. This We're isn't, a, this isn't a, a, you know, a big financial <laughs> project for us to make money. So yeah. Yeah, we do just want to, to continue to... to uh, to care for Christ Church, and if you want to support us in that, please do. However, in any of those ways, yeah. Um, and we, yeah, we'll see you next week. Catechize your kids. Bye bye.